like many of us, the anxiety of what the future might hold um, is still there in the back of our minds. Um, and as we've mentioned from the outset, what we're trying to do with this series on Bible prophecies um, to give you the confidence that the Bible can give us all help and guidance in these distressing times. And so far we have looked at some signpost prophecies that, that show that God has an overall plan and purpose with this earth and that he has given us a powerful witness in the nation of Israel and their relatively recent return to the land. Now, these signposts indicate to us that we are very near to the return of Christ and the setting up of the kingdom. And what we want to do tonight is we want to talk about another one of those significant um, Bible signposts. One of the things that the, the Bible can do for us is to, to give us a prophetic um, framework, a geopolitical framework, if you want, um, to help us interpret what's going on in the world and to, to give us um, some peace of mind that, that God has a plan and a purpose with us and with this earth that he has created. And so what we want to look at um, tonight is perhaps a topic that um, conjures up in, in many minds, many people's minds, a degree of worry and anxiety, Armageddon. It's sort of a, a very heavily laden word, isn't it? And in, often in, in uncertain times like these, where we face it, a situation that probably most of us in our lifetimes at least have not had to face, there'll be those among uh, the people who will, will cry that the end of the world is nigh and doom and destruction is upon us um, and it's, it's all going to come to an end. Now, we as Bible readers, when we examine the word of God with regards to these things that are called Armageddon in Scripture, well, what we find is that there is actually some very good news. And then there's some bad news, but then there's still some more good news with regards to this Armageddon. And the good news to start off with is that Armageddon is not actually this complete dystopian destruction of the entire globe and the entire population where everything is going to burn up um, and, and the world will end. In fact, what we're suggesting to you is that it's, it's merely the beginning of a new era of the setting up of God's kingdom on this earth when this earth will be um, restored the bad news, however, is, is that Armageddon is talking about a conflict. There is a battle. There's another world war, as we'll see, initiated by mankind, by certain nations, as we'll see, but a war in which God will intervene with force uh, through the visible return of the Lord Jesus Christ with his faith, faithful saints. So that is perhaps... There's the slightly bad side to it. But then there's more good news because the Bible actually foretells us what's going to happen and gives us these things in advance so that we can actually do something about it and make sure that we won't be caught up in this war and in the anxiety that all this um, upheaval will cause far beyond perhaps what we've seen with COVID-19. We have now a chance to, to look into these matters and to find out what God wants of us and to repent, be baptized, and therefore be counted among those who will be taken by Christ as his saints to intervene in this very war that we're going to look at. Now, 
The events surrounding Armageddon are described in, in quite a bit of detail in the Bible. And these details, in fact, give us, as mentioned, a, a geopolitical framework by which we can understand what's going on in the world as we hear of wars, of diseases, of terrorism, all events that, that are shaping world politics and by which God is working to bring about the moment of setting up his kingdom. And there's so much detail that we're actually going to take two nights to cover this topic. Uh, tonight is the first in, on Armageddon, and then we're also going to look at it next, next week. And what we want to do is tonight we want to look at what is Armageddon? What is it? Where does it occur in the Bible? And, and, and what, what do, can we learn from it? What are the details surrounding that? And we're going to look at, at Revelation chapter 16 for that. And we will also have time tonight to look at who is involved in this war. Who is the main aggressor? Who are all the nations that are involved? And for that, we'll go to Ezekiel um, 38. Now, that should be plenty for us um, for tonight. And we'll continue next week, uh, God willing, when we look at the, the how and the when. How is this actually going to happen? What are the exact details um, surrounded? Is there, is there some more that the Bible um, talks to us about it? And we'll find the answers for that in Daniel chapter 11. And then finally, the, the important question, well, when will it happen? Do we have indications of when this will happen? We'll talk a little bit about that tonight, but uh, a lot more about that um, next week as well. And to answer that question, we'll go back to Revelation 16, where we'll start tonight. So, Let's begin then by asking the question, so what is Armageddon? What is Armageddon? The, actually, it might surprise you that in actual fact, when you do a word search for Armageddon in the Bible, the, the word actually only occurs once in the entire Bible. Only once. And that's in Revelation 16 and verse 16. So let, let's, let's go and have a look at, at um, Revelation 16. If you have a Bible, then um, please follow along. Um, but I'll also have the passages up on the screen. Well, let's, let's start in Revelation 16 uh, at verse 13. So in verse 13, we read, And I saw three unclean spirits working miracles, which go forth unto the kings of the earth and of the whole world, to gather them to the battle of that great day of God Almighty. So the context is about a, a battle that involves the kings of the earth and the whole world. So it's a worldwide conflict. It's describing another world war, if you like. Now, we also learn here that it's called by a specific phrase indicating a certain time period, and that's the called the day, um, the, the great day of God, God Almighty. So that gives us a bit of a time frame, a, a key word that, that might come up elsewhere in, in the Bible that might connect some other passages with this. Verse 15 then says that this is, and, and this is the Lord Jesus Christ speaking, Behold, I come as a thief. Blessed is he that watcheth and keepeth his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. So at the same time as this battle occurs and as, as these nations are gathered, actually the return of the Lord Jesus Christ happens. And we learn in the, in the later chapters of Revelation that 
this is also the time of the setting up of the kingdom on earth and the rule of Jesus Christ on earth in this kingdom. This is not going to be the destruction of planet earth, but it's going to be um, the setting up of the kingdom. Then we read in verse 16, and here is our phrase, and he gathered them together into a place called in the Hebrew tongue Armageddon. So here we have our word, and what we've actually find is that it's actually a reference in particular to a special place. So it's a special place. Armageddon is a place in uh, name. And we also notice that special mentioned special mention is made here that this place is called Armageddon in the Hebrew tongue. In the Hebrew tongue. Now, you may be aware that the New Testament is written in, in the Greek language. So this is actually pointing us to a place where Hebrew is spoken and where we need to look to the Hebrew um, for explanation. There's an interesting comment in a, in a book called The Apocalypse in History by W.H. Barker and W.H. Bolton, um, which says this, the fact that Armageddon is said to be so-called in the Hebrew tongue and is defined to be a place sufficiently indicate the error of the popular application of the name. It would be incongruous to speak of a conflict waged mainly in other countries by a name particularly associated with the Hebrew tongue. It must relate to a conflict in Palestine where place names in Hebrew exist. So that's part of the indication of in the Hebrew tongue. Now in the Hebrew tongue, this little phrase in the Hebrew tongue also points us to look for the meaning of the name itself and to look for that from the Hebrew. And we're instructed to look to Hebrew. So what does the word actually mean? Well, when you look up the uh, this word, in most commentaries, they suggest that the word is actually Har Magedon. Har meaning mountain or hill, and Magedon referring to the city of Megiddo in the uh, north of Israel. And here you can see uh, the north, uh, northern part of Israel, Megiddo is up there, not too far from the Lake of Galilee in the north. But as we'll see in a moment, the other passages that, that are related with this, that are describing the same um, incident and, and, and event, they consistently speak of this battle actually centering in and around Jerusalem, which, as you can see on this map also, um, is much further south um, in, in the land of Israel. So perhaps the, the, the widely accepted uh, interpretation is not quite right. Now, E.B. Elliot, in, in a booklet called Hora um, Apocalyptica, says that it, it uh, perhaps means the mountain of gathering with reference to its prob probable etymology. Um, and so perhaps there are other ways of interpreting um, this Hebrew phrase or this Hebrew word of Armageddon. And there's another suggestion that is put forward by a, a certain John Thomas um, of what this Hebrew word might mean, which when we look at, at it in the full context of all the Bible passages in a moment, we'll see makes a lot more sense. And, and his suggestion is this, that the word is comprised of three parts, arma meaning a heap of sheaves, gay meaning a valley, arma gay, don, Don, the last part of the word meaning judgment. So Armageddon, a heap of sheaves in a valley 
for judgment. And we'll see in a moment why this suggestion makes a lot more sense. The idea of, of, the, of a harvest of a sheave of sheaves that are brought together in a, in, a, in a valley for judgment, referring to a place near Jerusalem. In fact, a, a similar pa passage that talks about this same event um, in Micah 4 verse 11 says, Now also many nations are gathered against thee. And we're talking about Jerusalem, indicated by this Zion. And it says here in Micah 4 verse 12, He shall gather them as the sheaves into the floor. So this judgment that God is bringing about is like the gathering of sheaves into the into the floor, Micah 4 says, or in this place called Armageddon, a, a, a heap of sheaves that are gathered in a valley for judgment. So if we uh, look at this summary, then we have the description of um, this battle and all, all this detail um, given to us in the book of Revelation. And now while the, the word Armageddon, as we mentioned, does not occur anywhere else in the Bible, perhaps we can now look for other passages that, that might talk about the same thing by comparing all the elements that we find in Revelation 16 and see whether they can be found in other passages. And actually, we, if you did that exercise, you, you would find that you, there's actually a number of passages that speak about the same event. But we want to look at one in particular, which is the um, prophet Joel's third chapter. So um, Joel chapter 3. In Joel chapter 3, we, we seem to be having the same um, incident talked about. In verse uh, 1 to 2, we read, For behold, in those days and in that time when I shall bring again this captivity of Judah and Jerusalem, I will also gather all nations and will bring them down into the valley of Jehoshaphat and will plead with them there for my people and for my heritage Israel, whom they have scattered among the nations and parted my land. So we know that, first of all, the timing of all of this in verse 1 and 2. This um, particular prophecy speaks of the restoration of Judah, which is the land of Israel, as we saw last time. Uh, Chris last, last week looked at this, that, which was fulfilled in 1948, and then Jerusalem um, partially, uh, fulfilled in 1967. So this gives us a bit of an idea of the timing of, of this prophecy. We also see the word um, together here again, gathering or assembling together. Um, and that it involves all nations. And then we have uh, not the, the exact same, not the same word here, but we have the same idea of a valley, the valley of Jehoshaphat. And Jehoshaphat actually um, means Yahweh has judged or Yahweh's judgment. So it's the valley of Yahweh's judgment that we're talking about. So in terms of the idea, it's, it's very much on, along the same lines. And that is a place in Israel, again, that is clear from the context here in, in, in Joel 3. Well, then we cast our eyes down further in, in Joel 3 to verse um, 9 and 14. You can see that here on the right-hand side. I've brought that up as well. Verse 9 says, Proclaim you this among the Gentiles. Prepare war. Wake up the mighty men. Let all the men of war draw near. Let them come up. Uh, beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. 
Let the weak say, I am strong. Assemble yourselves and come, all ye heathen, and gather yourselves together round about. Thither cause thy mighty ones to come down, O Lord. Let the heathen be waked and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there will I sit to judge all the heathen round about. Put ye in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come, get you down, for the press is full, the fats overflow, for their wickedness is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. So we can, again, see very much similar um, phrases. We see that there's a preparation for war. So again, this is a battle. Um, we again see the, the all nations in verse 11, all the nations assembled, assembling themselves for war. Um, we have the valley of Jehoshaphat. And again, it's called the valley of decision, verse 14. Um, we have harvest language, the sickle that is being thrust in, which might um, work together with our sheaves. And this event is referred to as the day of the Lord, because again, we see that God is going to intervene in this war. So when we compare the, uh, the two chapters, Joel 3 and Revelation 16, I think we can clearly see that these two passages are speaking about the same event. They talk about the same uh, same time because they're using the same key expression, the great day of the God of God Almighty or the day of the Lord. We are talking about a global conflict. It's a world war. The word gathering is used that God is gathering these together. So God is bringing about the circumstances that will lead the nations to, to be gathered together. We have an Israel connection. We, we have a valley that is, is being talked about. We have harvest analogy. And of course, as we mentioned, God is going to intervene. And as you can see there, even the language in which that is going to happen is the same. God speaking with a great voice. Um, or or in, in, in Joel, it says that, that God will roar out of Zion and utter his voice from Jerusalem. So... These two passages really give us our framework um, from which we then can find other passages um, in the scriptures of what of that, that might be talking about the same thing and from where we can learn perhaps further detail, for example, what we want to find out, who is, is involved in being gathered together. So I think this, this is helpful because it shows the kind of approach that is very useful when we come to the Bible, when we compare the phrases and we compare um, the detail that's given so that we know that we're talking about the same thing. So let's turn our attention, first of all, um, to the who. Who is it that will, will cause this world war? Who is it that will plunge all the nations into war? It might be God um, bringing about some circumstances, but it has to be done by a certain nation by um by someone who will who will will cause this to happen now, as we look to identify the players in this i just want to mention again that we're not politically or racially or philosophically motivated in this we're simply looking to scripture and seeing what the bible does foretell with regards to what political powers are involved and what they do we're simply um, reading what it says in the Bible and, and actually finding 
remarkably how this is being outworked in the, at the very moment. So let's turn to Ezekiel chapter 38. This is our, our next passage that we want to look at and we'll, in which we'll spend the rest of tonight in. Ezekiel chapter 38 is a very interesting chapter. We looked at some of the context uh, with Chris last time, that it comes in the, in the context of, of a, at least a partial restoration of Israel. But before we delve into the detail, let's just uh, make sure that we are talking about the same event as Armageddon from Revelation 16. And what we find is that, yes, we are talking about the same thing because, again, we have the same time as spoken of, of that day. We have a global conflict. They're gathered together. The nations are gathered together. There's an Israel connection and there's a valley. And finally, God intervenes. We don't have necessarily um, a, a very clear harvest connection, but, but that's only one of those things. Everything else is there. So I think we can be certain that we're talking about the same event um, and we can get now a more detailed understanding about this event in this place called Armageddon from chapter, Ezekiel, from chapter 38 of Ezekiel about who is involved because Ezekiel 38 really does tell us all the players that are involved in this war. So when we come to Ezekiel 38, what do we read? What, what does Ezekiel 38 tell us? In verse 1 to 4, we read, And the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, set thy face against Gog, the land of Magog, the chief prince of Meshach and Tubal, and prophesy against him. Now, as you can see on the screen, I've inserted uh, a, a better translation from Young's literal translation, which has for this verse 2 that instead of um, the chief prince, it has Gog of the land of Magog, the prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. So that, that's a better translation for that verse. Then it says in verse 3, And say, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I am against thee, O Gog, prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. Again, the, the, from the other translation. And I will turn thee back and put hooks into thy jaws, and I'll bring thee forth, and all thine army, horsemen, horses and horsemen, all of them clothed with all sorts of armor, even a great company with bucklers and shields, all of them handling swords. So what we see is we have a man. We have a man called Gog. It seems to be a name. This Gog, it seems to be of the land of Magog. That seems to be where, where he originates from. And he is the prince of Rosh, of Meshech, and of Tubal. Now, we also notice that it seems that God is, again, creating the circumstances in which this king, um, by the name of Gog, will feel forced to act in a way. He has hooks in his in his jaws. It's it's not very comfortable to have hooks in your jaws, and it, it sort of forces you to do um, things and go in a certain direction. So it seems there's pressure being put to bear on um, on this Gog of the land of Magog, who's the prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal, to, to do um, what, what we find in the rest of this chapter. So we read in verse 14, um, Therefore, son of man, prophesy and say to Gog, Thus says the Lord God, On that day 
When my people Israel are dwelling securely, you will bestir yourself and come from your place out of the uttermost parts of the north. You and many peoples with you, all of them riding on horses, a great host, a mighty army. So we notice a couple of things here that Israel's back in the land, verse 14, as we saw last, last week. And in addition to the names of verse 2, of Gog, of the land of Magog, and this, this location of the land of Magog, his origin, we get another clue in verse 15 about the location from where this Gog is from. It says here he's from the uttermost parts of the north. So that's a, a pretty good geographical clue, isn't it? And, and we would suggest that seeing that this is talking about an invasion into Israel, that it, that is in, in relation to the land of Israel from the uttermost parts of the north of Israel. But before we get there, it says, and it's, it's still on the screen there in verse 5, um, Persia, Ethiopia, and Libya with them, all of them with shield and helmet. And then we have Goma and all his bands, the house of Togama of the north quarters, and all his bands, and many people with thee. Um, so we add to this list um, the allies of this, this Gog, which are Persia, Ethiopia, Libya, um, but also Goma and the house of Togama. So that's a, a, a reasonable list, isn't it, of, of nations that are allied together um, that are, are going to invade. And, and it says in verse 8 that after many days thou shalt be visited. This is still talking about Gog. In the latter years thou shalt come into the land that is brought back from the sword and is gathered out of many people against the mountains of Israel. Now the mountains of Israel are the west bank um, of Israel surrounding Jerusalem. Um, and it's also land that has been brought forth out of the nations, and they shall dwell safely, all of them. Thou shalt ascend and come like a storm, meaning that he will suddenly come. Thou shalt be like a cloud to cover the land, thou and all thy bands, and many people with thee. Thus saith the Lord God, it shall come to pass also that at that same time shall things come into thy mind, and thou shalt think an evil thought. And thou shalt say, I will go up to the land of unwalled villages, and I will go to them that are at rest, that dwell safely, all of them dwelling without walls and having neither bars nor gates, to take a spoil and to take a prey. So this Gog is coming into Israel, and specifically the mountains of Israel, which is the heartland of Israel, the area surrounding Jerusalem, the West Bank. And this, as we saw last week, this therefore has to be post-1948, post-1967. And it says that he will come suddenly, like a storm that comes over a country. He comes suddenly, and he is an opportunist. He has an evil thought, and he sees an opportunity to take a spoil. Now, there are, however, some other nations also mentioned that are not part of this alliance. In fact, that are taking offense at what this Gog is doing, and they voice their concerns in verse 13. It talks about Sheba and Dedan, and the merchants of Tarshish with all the young lions thereof shall say unto thee, Art thou come to take a spoil? Hast thou gathered thy company to take a prey? And so these nations are in opposition to this confederate army or this allied army of Gog. 
but it doesn't seem like they have any time or any resources to be able to do anything other than to protest and say, well, are you come to take a spoil? And so we see in this chapter a, an, an invasion of these, these, these nations, these allied nations, as you can see there, um, opposed by some other nations. So this in very short are the players that are listed out in this chapter. So who are these nations? Who are these main player? Who are these players? And in particular, who is this Gog? Who is this main aggressor in of verse two? Well, as we mentioned, the 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 a major geographical clue comes in verse fifteen, that he comes from the uttermost parts of the north. Now that's a pretty good clue already, and we don't need to go anywhere to any lexica. We just need to. Um, read our Bibles, and we find already pretty much our answer, in fact. Because if you travel due north from Israel, the furthermost country in the north that you come to is today's Russia and the eastern part of Ukraine. So that's a pretty good uh, big clue from within the actual context of the chapter, isn't it? But let's see if there's some other evidence supporting this. Well, if you look up a lexicon, Jesenius says, that um, Rosh is a, a, a northern nation mentioned with Tubal and Meshach. And you can see there that Rosh is a proper noun. So it should be translated as a name, as a, as a Rosh. It's associated with Tubal and Meshach. And it says here in Jesenius, undoubtedly the Russians. So that, that, that figures with our clue that it's in the outermost parts of the north. A, another writer um, Phalek wrote in 1646, it is credible that from Rosh and Meshach, of whom Ezekiel speaks, descended the Russians and Muscovites, nations of the greatest celebrity in European Scythia. Rosh is the most ancient form under which history makes mention of the name Russia. So, um, both the name Rosh as well as the outermost parts of the north actually then strongly suggest that Rosh, Rosh points to Russia. Well, what about Gog of the land of Magog? Again, this is from um, Jesenius' lexicon. And he says that Magog is a proper name of a son of Japheth from Genesis 10 and also a region. So Magog is a region. This is the way in which it is used here in Ezekiel 38. And a great and powerful people of the same name, inhabiting the extreme recesses of the north, who are at, the, at some time to invade the Holy Land. So he's actually read Ezekiel 38 as well. We are to understand just the same nations as the Greeks comprised under the name of Scythians. Now, who were these Scythians? Well, Josephus, um, a historian, Jewish historian, tells us that Magog founded those that from him were named Magogites, but who are by the Greeks called the Scythians. And another historian, Herodotus, says that immediately that the Ister or the Danube is crossed, old Scythia begins. Beyond this tract, we find the Scythians again in possession of the country, above the Tauri and the parts bordering on the eastern sea as far as the river Tanais or, or the river Don, which is in Russia. And so he seems to indicate 
this whole area from the, the Danube right across into Russia and to the River Don is the area of, of, the, of Magog, the land of Magog, or the uh, called by the, the area that the Scythians roamed in. The Scythians were a, a, a nation um, that were pretty much lived much like the Mongols on horseback, were a very fierce um, nomadic kind of nation, but this seems to have been their heartland. Now, the time period in which Ezekiel prophesied was sometime between 593 and 571 BC. And him mentioning Gog and speaking to his contemporaries about Gog of the land of Magog, by which he was referring to these Scythians, that would have left a very, very chilling feeling for the listeners of, of Ezekiel at that time. Because, you see, it hadn't been that long that the Scythians had had mounted an invasion and had swept through the land and down south right into, the, into Israel as well, only about 40 or 60 years earlier to Ezekiel's prophecy. Now, uh, John Alfrey um, says in his book that the Scythians dominated Western Asia for some 28 years. Their attacks on the northern border of the Assyrian Empire helped to bring about its fall. So they harassed the Assyrians. Many of Ezekiel's older contemporaries would actually have remembered these Scythians in the reign of Josiah, sweeping south, looting and burning through Assyria, where they harassed the army of the Medes who were engaged in the siege of Nineveh. Then descending through Palestine, where they occupied en route the city of Bethshan, which was renamed Scythopolis, they pressed southward to the border of Egypt. Here, Sametichus, king of Egypt, brought them off, and thus Ezekiel's proclama uh, proclamation of a future invasion by these wild northmen would have struck terror into the hearts of the listeners. And so Ezekiel says in Ezekiel 38, it's going to happen again. There will be another such invasion of these terrifying Scythians. But you know, that never happened again. The Scythians never did come back. They disappeared. They receded back. They disappeared as quickly as they came. And they have never come back down that far since. So this prophecy is yet to come to pass. It has not yet been fulfilled. Now, John Orfrey also says regarding um, Gog, this, that this Gog is a name of, a, of the leader. Gog was the leader of these descendants of Magog, for that is the significance of the description Gog of the land of Magog. And later it says down here that uh, the sons of Gagi, a chief of the Saka, whom Smith identifies with Gog, they seem to have taken this name as, as a title which the, the leaders carried uh, with them from, from this in, uh, initial leader. It is reasonable to conclude that the Gagi Gog was the family name of those Scythian leaders of those days. So it's the name of the leader of, this Scythi of these Scythians. And back in Ezekiel 38, he's also styled then the prince of Rosh, or the Rus, as we said, and of Meshach and of Tubal. 
Now, what can we find out about Mishik and Jubal? Mishik, of Mishik, it says in Easton's Bible Dictionary that they were in all probability the Moshi, a people inhabiting the Moshian mountains between the Black and the Caspian Seas. Um, it seems like they were mingling with the Scythians, and there they became known as the Muscovs and gave the name to the Russian nation and its ancient capital, by which they are still generally known throughout the East. So Meshach refers to those who, in the end, gave their name um, to the, the Muscovs, from which the, the name Moscow comes from. And Tubal, we learn from Jesenius again, that it's the uh, name of the Tiberini, a nation of Asia Minor, that were dwelling by the Euxine Sea. Now, the Euxine is the Black Sea. And um, it, we, we might make the comment that a similar fate overtook the Tiberini. It seems quite reasonable to argue that the name of Tubal was carried by his descendants when they migrated into the region we now call Siberia. And it was their name that at some stage became attached to this river Tobol, from which from whence the name of the city of Tobolsky was ultimately derived. So we see then how this all fits in with, with who we're saying is the main aggressor at the head of this invading army. Gog, this leader, this man, the prince of the Russians, and Moscow and Tobolsky. Now I want you to note that while the land of Magog included um, this area stretching as far as into Germany. You can see here on the far left, um, it says where it says Schwarzwald, that's, that's the area of, of Germany, Schwarzwald and Zugspitze. These are all the areas in, in Germany, right over into Russia. The actual heartland of, of the Megagites is, is around here, which is um, Western Russia and Eastern Ukraine. Or, and, and also Ukraine itself. And down here you see the Crimean um, Peninsula. <clears throat> now, why, why would we mention that? Well, I want you to think back a few years, not too long ago, about the events surrounding this mysterious referendum in Crimea. And then the subs and, and also the, the uh, um, civil unrest in the Ukraine, where still today, um, Eastern Ukraine, the Russian-speaking parts are fighting against Western Ukraine and the involvement of Russia in it. What has this got to do with what we're talking about? Well, here's a good example of how we can use the scriptures, the Bible, to understand geopolitical events, how we can interpret with the Bible in hand what's going on. Why would we expect Russia to get involved in the Ukraine? Well, because... As we just saw, the Bible identifies the leader of the Russians as being of the land of Magog, meaning that's the area where Gog originates from, and therefore while he, why he might have some interest in this area, the area where Gog is from. Here's what it says about ancient Rus or Russia and where their origin is. This is from um, National Geographic, March 1985, about the origins of Russia. It says here that Viking roots struck deep into Russian soil when Scandinavian warriors and traders known as the Rus created the land's first organized state and gave their name to a future empire. The legendary Rurik of the Rus 
became Prince of Novgorod in AD 862. A thousand years later, his bronze figure adorns a huge monument in the Kremlin Square of that city. By the 11th century, a Rus state centered at Kiev, that's in the, that's in the Ukraine, stretched from the Baltic to the Black Sea. You see, according to, to the historians, the area known as the Ukraine was actually the birthplace of the Rus, the Russians, also known as the Kievan Rus. The National Geographic continues and says that forced into a faith of their rulers choosing, the people of Kiev are herded into the Dnieper, which is the river in Kiev, as Byzantine prelates administer mass baptism into Christian faith. And it says that this Vladimir is called a prince of the Rus dynasty and that he was canonized for converting Kievan Rus to Christianity. So one of the previous leaders of the Rus was called Vladimir, who actually converted the Rus to Christianity. Now that's interesting, isn't it? Now, Kiev was the capital of Russia for quite a long time until the grandson of Genghis Khan, the Mongol leader, came along and burned it to the ground, at which point the capital of, of Russia, of the Rus, was moved then to Moscow. And at the time of, in 2014, around the annexation of Crimea, the BBC had to say this. For President Putin, this is not just a geopolitical battle for influence over a country in Russia's backyard. It is to protect land, which for him is historically and culturally an essential part of the idea of Russia. Gog, Prince of Russia, Moscow and Tobolsky, of the land of Magog, their birthplace being Kievan Rus, but their influence stretches as far west as Germany itself. Now, we're not just given the name of the nation, right? We're not just given Russia, Rosh, and Moscow, and Tobolsky, but we are also um, given the name of a leader that they have. So their focus is actually now given also on, a, an, on the leader of this nation. There's a title, a prince. Now, why, why is that? The other nations don't have that. It's just this one, this here, where there is a specific leader mentioned. Well, I believe that it's because the, the Bible actually points us to a particularly formidable leader, unlike any other around, at, at that time. And we can actually draw up a, a profile um, of this Russian leader. We have a, a pretty detailed list of actually of, of things, not just from Ezekiel 38, but also from some other, other passages, parallel passages, where we can draw up a pretty um, detailed profile of this man. First of all, he's, it's from the, some of the passages, we see that he's very ruthless, personally ruthless, and also as a nation, they're ruthless. For example, it says in Daniel 8, that he's a king of fierce countenance. And he's understanding dark sentences and he's, he shall stand up. Then we, we read in, in, other, in these other verses that he's very ambitious and also deceitful. Because you see, it says in Daniel 8 that he shall magnify himself. So he's very ambitious. But it also says that his policy, through his policy, he shall cause craft to prosper in his hand. And that word craft 
um, in 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 Daniel eight is the has the meaning of deceit. He's very deceitful, and he'll use this excessively. It says it will prosper in his hand. It also says that he's using religion. He's religiously cunning. It says in his estate shall he honor the god of forces. So he's using religion to to further his his purpose, what he has, to, uh, what he wants to do. And he's obviously what we've seen in Ezekiel thirty eight very aggressive militarily now this is the profile of this man going from the bible at the time of the end and while we don't know exactly when bible prophecy might be going to be fulfilled it certainly looks like the current leader fits the bill now don't get me wrong i'm not necessarily saying that vladimir putin is gog he may or he may not be gog this prince of rosh and by the way, his name, Vladimir, is like that earlier um, Russian leader. His name actually means prince. Now, whether he is Gog or not, we, we're not going to make a commitment on that. But he has certainly set up a precedency that bears all the hallmarks of this Gog, of the profile that we can see here. Well, either he is Gog or one of his successors who will be very much like him. You see... This current leader of the Russians is very ruthless. He's trained in by the uh, he trained in the former KGB. He's learned judo. He's a judoka, and he knows how to use leverage, and he knows how to deal with people. He's also very politically ambitious, and we've just seen this, haven't we? In, in the recent weeks, he has shown throughout his political career how to stay in power. And even right at the moment, he wants to change the constitution again because he wants to stay in power. This, this man has been in power for a long, long time. He was first made prime minister in uh, 1999, when, and later that year he became the acting president of Russia. 1999. He's been in power already for 21 years. And he wants to now stay in power till 2036. Now, it said in, in Daniel... Um, 8 verse 25 that he shall, shall cause craft or deceit as the as, as it means to prosper in his hand well the the bbc certainly ascribes that characteristic to him when it says that russian president vladimir putin a judo black belt appears to symbolize two of the martial arts key qualities guile and aggression and you may also remember the little green men that suddenly appeared in Crimea in 2014. Supposedly, they were just Russian sympathizers, but they looked suspiciously, suspiciously well-equipped, more like special troops, in fact. And, in fact, Russian deception is nothing new. And they, in Russia, even have a special term for it. They call it maskarovka. And they've been practicing this strategy of deceit and of masking for a long time, as it says in this article by the Global News, where it says that the Russians have been embracing this approach for centuries in military and political showdowns under a doctrine called Maskarovka. The word means masking, and it's a fitting name for a tactic that depends entirely on misrepresentation. It is designed, it says here in, in bold, quite simply to keep adversaries permanently of balance, guessing what Moscow really intends. And Vladimir Putin and Russia today use this um, very effectively with misinformation through the media and, um, and 
and the internet and also interfering in all sorts of things. Um, has Putin even fooled the president of the United States? Surely not. What well, says here in a tweet by Trump, every time he sees me, he says, I didn't do it. And I really believe that when he tells me that, he means it. You're right. That's, a, that's probably not the case. Religiously cunning. Certainly he is. The headline here of this article says how Putin uses Russian orthodoxy to grow his empire. He's very religiously cunning. Or as it says in the Washington Post, Putin declared Christianity was a powerful spiritual unifying force in the creation of a Russian nation and Russian state. So he uses it to actually unify the nation and to build his empire. Well, that reminds me of a, a Roman emperor by the name of Constantine. Well, finally, we have military aggressive, and surely I don't need to tell you um, that the Russians and Putin have been militarily aggressive. If you think back to Chechnya, Syria, Ukraine, you don't want to mess with the Russians. Now, as I said, he may or may not be going, be that as it may, he has certainly set up an authoritarian autocratic state. He's a Tsar-like president. He has set in place a legacy that is just what the Bible describes. And we see in Russia today that given the right circumstances, a man can rise to incredible power. We may in fact already see in this man, Gog, in power already and ready to be drawn out by some circumstance that will provide him the opportunity to invade the Middle East. Now look again what it says about this Russian leader in Ezekiel 38 verse 4. I'll turn thee back and put hooks into thy jaws. I think this indicates that Gog is pulled into action by God by some circumstances that force him to act. He's forced to act. And verse 10 says, Things come into thy mind, thou shalt think an evil thought. And thou shalt say, I'll go up to the land of unwalled villages to take a spoil. So perhaps the circumstances that force Russia to act will have to do in part with economic reasons. There might be an economic reason why he will want to, um, to invade. You see, Russia's economy is very dependent on oil and gas. John McCain cheekily once said that Russia is a gas station masquerading as a country. Well, Europe is significantly dependent on Russian gas and oil. And if someone comes along to threaten that, well, that undercuts Russia's whole GDP. And Israel and Egypt have both recently, in recent years, found significant gas fields and oil fields, like the Leviathan gas field off the shores of Israel, and they will offer Europe a serious alternative to Russian gas. Well, in this Globes article, it says that Russia wants a share in Israeli gas. Well, you bet they do, because they want to have a, a say in, in how to make money out of this, because their whole economy depends on it. It says here, this Gazprom's interest in Israel, Israeli gas reservoir Leviathan is a strategic issue for Russian President Vladimir Putin. And it says... It's not the first time that Russia has tried to get a foothold in there. 
It says here, Russia supplies 35% of Europe's gas and 55% of Turkey's, and both of these gas consumers are desperately seeking to diversify their sources of supply. And so Israel is fearful that Russia's primary aim is to forestall the development of the Leviathan in order to prevent competition with Russian gas. Interesting, isn't it? Or look at these headlines. Israel wants to knock Russia out and export gas to Europe. Ooh, they're going to be in conflict with, with Russia. Or here, Haaretz says, the US out, Russia in. Can Israel stand up to the new sheriff in town? Russia's growing presence in the Middle East includes economic interests like energy and arms. Israel should trade carefully as the new era evolves. Don't you think that Russia is going to protect its economy if it became, becomes an existential threat? So I think we, we can see how things are shaping up accurately and scarily so, according to Ezekiel 38. Now, coming back to identifying the nations um, that we have, according to Ezekiel 38, Gog is not just coming with his own army. He has several allies that support and help him. Now, some are perhaps there more willingly than others. You see, it says in verse 7 um, that Gog should be a guard unto them. Now, that word, a guard, can have double meaning. It can mean to, to be an, uh, a, a, an umbrella in the sense of, of to watch and to guard, to keep safe. But it can also mean to keep in prison, to hedge about and protect your own interests. So it can mean both. And it's, it's perhaps different for the different nations under, under whose um, uh, of these allies. It's not necessarily a relationship that it's always mutual. And when you think of the nations that are under the umbrella and the shadow of the Russians today, they would feel a, a keenly feel a sense of uneasiness. So the allies of, of Russia, the Bible tells us in verse 5, are Persia, Ethiopia, and Libya. And really, there's, there's not much difficulty in identifying these, these nations. And if we look on a, on a map here, we can see them, um, Libya and Ethiopia, Northern Africa, and Persia uh, still being, being the Iran today. And many Iranians today still identify as Persians. Um, so those are some of the 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 allies that we would see Russia having an interest in, um, in, in building either relationship or, 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 or having some kind of influence in, right? So the North African countries, some of them at least, and, and, uh, and in Iran as well. Well, in fact, Russia is very involved and very interested in what happens in Iran. And it's turned itself into one of the major, um, Deal brokers, deal brokers in in the area, and particularly in re with regards to to Iran, it says here that Russia urges Iran um, not to give in to U.S. provocations. So um, they are playing a big part in 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 Iran at the moment. Also, with regards to Russia's um, presence in in Africa in recent uh, um, times. Russia, alongside the Middle East, has also turned its attention back to the African um, continent. 
says here in the New York Times, Russia exerts growing influence in Africa, worrying many in the West. What's Russia up to in, in, in Africa? Uh, Russia vows to forgive Ethiopia's debts amid growing push for influence in, in, in Africa. So here we see um, Russia having um, a lot of investment in Ethiopia already. Same in Libya. Putin-linked mercenaries are fighting on Libya's front lines. Russian snipers try to tilt Libyan war. So we see already Russia being very much involved in these areas, just as we would expect it. Now, back in, in Ezekiel 38, verse 6, we read of a couple of, of, of other um, allies, which might be a little bit harder to pinpoint. We have Goma and all his bands and the house of Tagama of the north quarters and all his bands. Now, unlike Persia, which has stayed the same geographically pretty much through, down throughout time, here we're dealing with nomadic tribes that have moved about a bit. So when it says Goma and all his bands, that, that does require a, a little bit of investigation. Now, Josephus tells us that Goma answers to the Galatians or the Gauls. And Gallia was the Latin name for what is now France. Uh, you can always rely on, on Asterix and Obelix as one of your history books as well. So um, also, uh, Young's Concordance says that um, Goma was the progenitor of the Sumerians and the, and the Kimbri and other branches of the Celtic family. And so Ezekiel's phrase and all his bands or all his tribes requires that we include all the main branches of the Celtic race. In short, this must mean that Western Europe is to become an ally of Gog. So Goma is not just France. It's perhaps a little bit more than, than, than France. And that's, again, confirmed to us from the Encyclopedia uh, Britannica, which talks about the Celts continually moving westward and mentioning France and Belgium. Um, so what we're um, saying is that the Goma, while originating in, in, in Galatia, in more in the in, in today's Turkey, they moved and the tribes of, 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 of Goma and all his bands really refer to um, Western Europe, particularly France, but also Belgium and parts of Germany as well. And interestingly enough, what we're seeing at the moment is again a trend in those countries to turn away from a close relationship with the US and turn towards Russia and to work closer with Putin and Russia. And I just absolutely love this, this picture because Sometimes a picture, a picture speaks more than a thousand words and they're really letting Russia and Putin in the door, aren't they? Here's another one. The French president Macron had to say this in August of last year on, a, on his Russian Facebook site, Facebook page. He said, Russia is a very deeply European country. We believe in Europe stretching from Lisbon to Vladivostok. Progress is evident on many political or economic issues for our, we, we are making efforts to develop Franco-Russian relations. I'm convinced that in the course of this multilateral restructuring, we must develop an architecture of security and trust between the European Union and Russia. Well, aren't we seeing Bible prophecy being fulfilled in our day? 
Well, Togama. Togama can be identified, again, as closely related with Goma, but being of a, a, a different tribe, didn't move westward, but stayed in the general area of Turkey and moved maybe a little bit north towards the Caucasian Mountains, the area of Armenia and Georgia. And perhaps that is what is meant when it says in, in Ezekiel 38 verse 6 that it's Togama of the north quarters. So it is perhaps Turkey still, but perhaps also um, Armenia, Georgia, of the Togama of the north quarters. So when we put these, these nations together on a map, we see a formidable alliance of Russia, Eastern and Western Europe, including Iran and parts of North Africa. Now, we then have the opposing group mentioned also in Ezekiel 38, who are not allied with Gog, who in fact are um, protesting. Now, these powers don't seem to be in a position to militarily oppose Gog. They only speak in protest because it seems that this invasion takes place very quickly. So who are those? Well, again, the first two mentioned, uh, Shiva and Dedan, are relatively easy to identify they are referring to the Arabian Peninsula. There are uh, both Hamitic and Shemitic, uh, Semitic Sheba and Dedan, but they actually both talk about the same areas, um, and that's the Arabian Peninsula. Now, um, Tarshish is slightly more involved to pinpoint, and we don't have time tonight to go into all the detail, but here is a summary of all the key points on how to identify Tarshish, you can probably go back uh, in the video if you want to have a look, uh, close look at it and pause on this slide. I just want to point out that really when you go through this list, there's only one power that fits this whole list. When you look at the uh, that it's of the Isles of the Gentiles, it's a maritime power, assists in regathering the Jews, is a sea trading power, is a source of tin. And here you can see one of the tin ingots found um, in the UK. So there's really only one power, and that is the power of Britain. And we know that it says of Tarshish that it is with all the young lions thereof. And you may have seen this uh, World War II poster. The old lion has long been a symbol for Britain and the Commonwealth and the nations, uh, the Commonwealth nations, and including the US as well. The English-speaking um, nations, they are the young lions um, of, of, of Tarshish. And it's, it's interesting to actually see a close relationship of the Arabian Peninsula nations, Sheba and Dedan today, and the relationship that they are fostering with the UK and the US and Commonwealth nations like Australia um, and New Zealand. For example, Jordan, um, which also forms part of this, this, this group, it's slightly up further up north, of course, but um, involves these, all these nations in a military exercise that they do every year. And guess what they call this military exercise? They call it Eagle Lion, and it happens every year. So Ezekiel definitely uh, gives us a who is who of this military conflict and invasion. It gives us a lot of detail regarding the alignment of many nations and who's allied with whom. And, and it describes to us the events that will take place in the latter days, in our time, the days in which the kingdom of God will be established in the earth. 
It describes a looming invasion led by Gog coming like a whirlwind. And this prince of, of Russia, Moscow and Tobolsky, whose, whose realm of influence reaches as far west as, as, as Germany and who counts Goma, France, and again Germany as his allies, as well as Iran and some North African um, nations. And this Gog will be drawn by certain circumstances, possibly economic, to suddenly invade Israel and to come from the uttermost parts of the north. But a, a, a group of nations will protest, um, which are Britain and the Commonwealth and Sheba, indeed, and the Arabian Peninsula, um, with, with strong protest, not with force, however. However, what we want to to close on and what we want to see is that throughout chapter 38 and chapter 39, if you want to read that in your own time, God is going to intervene and take an active and visible part in helping the nation of Israel at this point in time and for a very specific purpose. This battle and God's intervention is the beginning of the kingdom of God. This is the smiting of the, of the image of Daniel the stone that smites the image and stops the, the, the rule of mankind on this earth. And throughout both chapter 38 and 39, this phrase comes again and again, that the Gentiles, the heathen, the non-Jewish nations may know me, the God of Israel. All right. I will make my holy name known in the midst of my people, Israel. The heathen shall know that I am the Lord, the Holy One in Israel. This is the day whereof I have spoken. This is Armageddon. This is when God will reveal himself to all the world. So I've been going through quite a lot of detail here in Ezekiel 38 and have shown you a number of, of recent geopolitical developments. Now, what I think is just remarkable about all of this is this. For years, Bible students look for the alignment of the nations according to Bible prophecy. It doesn't matter what's happening in the world, really. We always look for these things. And in fact, back in 1848, in 1848, John Thomas writes, based on, the, on his understanding of the Bible, exactly the same things, that the future movements of Russia are notable signs of the times because they are predicted in the scriptures of truth. He says, when Russia makes its grand move for the building up of its image empire, then let the reader know that the end of all things as at present constituted is at hand. Now, sometimes world events and nations alliances fit better than at other times. But our expectation of what will happen doesn't change, because from our point of view, the Bible has proven itself so many times that the few prophecies that are left to be fulfilled will also come to pass. But here's the point. It's never been so easy to see Ezekiel 38 coming to pass than today. Putin may or may not be Gog. Russia may or may not be militarily as strong as they say. But if provoked, if they're forced to act, what stops them from acting? From a biblical point of view, how we would expect all the nations to be allied with each other and be set up, nothing is going to stop that from happening right now. 
And so as the writer in 1848 wrote, the long expected but stealthy advent of the King of Israel will be on the eve of becoming a fact and salvation will be to those who not only looked for it, but have trimmed their lamps by believing the gospel of the kingdom under the obedience of faith and the perfection thereof in fruits meet for repentance. And that is our appeal to you as we finish part one on Armageddon. Now is the time to search out more about what the gospel of the kingdom of God is all about and how we can be prepared for this worldwide conflict. Now, how is this battle of Armageddon really going to come to pass? And what are the indicators of when this is going to happen? Well, that's what we'll look at next time, God willing. In terms of a, a little um, recap, I guess, last time we considered where in the Bible Armageddon actually occurs and what the Bible um, says that Armageddon is. Armageddon is referring to a place where God will gather all nations to for battle and will intervene in the affairs of mankind. It's, it's when Jesus Christ will reveal himself and set up the kingdom. And we found that the, the word Armageddon, in fact, um, occurs only once in the entire Bible, here in Revelation in chapter 16 and verse 16. But we found that making a list of the events that, that are surrounding Armageddon, we can find several other passages and chapters in the Bible that talk about the same thing. We saw that this, the same event is described in Joel 3 as well as in Ezekiel 38, which we looked at in, in a lot more detail last time. And Ezekiel 38 gave us a, a, a who is who of this event, with uh, the main aggressor being the nation from the uttermost parts of the north of Israel, which was Russia, led by a ruthless leader by the name of Gog, as is a title of, of their leader. And then tonight, then we want to look at, at how this battle is, is going to un play out. How is it going to unfold exactly? And what are the details, the movements of, of, of gathering of the nations together for the battle in the Middle East? And what are the, the drivers that are going to, to drive that? So the, the first thing we want to do is, is delve um, a little bit further into the passage that seems to deal with this same event, which is Daniel chapter 11. And we want to see how this invasion is going to unfold. Um, oh, it seems to be taking quite a long time for the slides to actually come up, um, but here it is. So, uh, first of all, Daniel chapter 11... Um, Oh, my, my apologies. Sorry, I've got the slide up here that uh, really showed from last time the, you know, the, the same events, just so that you remember what we're talking about. So it shows us the events um, that, that took place uh, in those three chapters and that they're all the same. 
And um, if I go to this slide as well, still recapping, um, I'll just wait till that comes up on your screens. Seems to be the other computer seems to be freezing a little bit. Here we have the map as we identified the nations from last time in chapter 38. Um, and as the historians really um, identify those nations for us, we can see here the, 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 the region of, of Moscow and Russia, um, as we've identified, and the Goma of, in, the, in, in Western Europe, as well as some of the other nations um, that we looked at. All right, so let's, let's come then to tonight's topic, the, the question of, um, of how, I've still got up there what, I changed the questions, what or how really it should be. And we're going to look at that in Daniel chapter 11, and particularly verses 40 to 45. So um, let's perhaps read, first of all, um, a few verses out of that chapter so we, that we know what, it, what this is talking about. So let's read Daniel chapter 11 and verses uh, 40 to um, 45. So in Daniel chapter 11 and verse 40, it says, And at the time of the end, now that's interesting, isn't it? Because here we already are introduced. Well, this is the time of the end. We've seen that this is a reoccurring theme in these passages. At the time of the end shall the king of the south push at him, and the king of the north shall come against him like a whirlwind, with chariots and with horsemen and with many ships. And he shall enter into the countries and shall overflow and pass over. He shall enter also into the glorious land, and many countries shall be overthrown. But these shall escape out of his hand, even Edom and Moab and the chief of the children of Ammon. He shall stretch forth his hand also upon the countries, and the land of Egypt shall not escape. But he shall have power over the treasures of gold and of silver and over all the precious things of Egypt, and the Libyans and the Ethiopians shall be at his steps. But tidings out of the east and out of the north shall trouble him. Therefore he shall go forth with great fury to destroy and utterly to make away many. And he shall plant the tabernacles of his palace between the seas and in the glorious holy mountain. Yet he shall come to his end and none shall help him. Now, perhaps you can already see why we're saying that these verses are talking about the same event. We're looking at a passage that indeed deals with the same events that it seems that Ezekiel 38 um, was talking about, was describing. We see the same elements. Both chapters really give us a lot of information regarding this battle. Um, so, before we go into the detail of the um, exact um, verses in here, let's just double check that though, that we are definitely talking about the same event. And I want to particularly compare it um, this time with Ezekiel 38, because there's a lot of um, even more detail between Ezekiel 38 and Daniel 11 than there is perhaps with uh, Revelation 16. We saw last time, didn't we, how, how Revelation 16, Joel 3 and Ezekiel 38 talk about the same thing. So I think that's fair enough that we can compare Ezekiel 38 and Daniel 11 and still prove that we're talking about the same thing. So again, we're, we're talking about the, the, the same time, right? Ezekiel 38 talks about the latter days. Here in Daniel 11, we see that we're talking about the time of the end. 
then it's we also see that it's um, the invader comes out of the same place. The king of the north is styled in Daniel 11. We saw that in Ezekiel 38, he came out of the north parts. It is a global conflict. The same allies I mentioned, Ethiopia, Libya. We have the same location. It's against Israel, against the glorious land between the sea and the glorious holy mountain. That's all talking about Israel. And we'll see that Daniel 11 particularly is concerned with the Jews and the land of Israel. We see the same um, massive armament that's coming against uh, the the nations in this in this invasion. The person coming down, Russia, has got the same greedy intentions. It's a surprise attack, and again, God intervenes at the end. So I think we can say. For sure that we're talking about the the, the same um, incident here. There's a lot of detail that is that is very uh, much the same. Now, before we go into a bit of the detail of Daniel 11, in order to understand how this chapter fits in, let's let's recap a little bit from three weeks ago. I know it's been it's a bit of a long time. A lots has, lots has happened in three weeks. But if you remember back, we looked at the prophecy of Daniel, and particularly um, we looked at Daniel chapter 2. Now, what we need to appreciate is that in, in the book of Daniel, the prophecies reveal themselves in a successive form, and they, they add detail. And these successive prophecies in Daniel 2, Daniel 7, Daniel 8, they reveal more and more detail with some of the specific things that, that we read about. And they each add to the previous one, or they, they talk about the same events from a slightly different angle, perhaps. And so in Daniel 2, we see an image with different materials that, that symbolize a succession of kingdoms. The Babylonian, the Medo-Persian, the Greeks, the, and finally the Fourth Empire, the Roman Empire, that then also goes into the feet. And we see a stone coming that smashes the image which, of course, was, as we saw, the Lord Jesus Christ to set up the kingdom of God on earth. And that's, that's really the, the anchor vision, so to say, of Daniel. That gives you the grand structure, the grand purpose, and, and an overview over, over world events. Well, the same four kingdoms are mentioned to us or described to us in Daniel chapter 7. Now, this time in Daniel chapter 7, it uses four beasts. And some extra information is given particularly about the fourth beast, which was the Roman, the, the last empire, the Roman Empire. And then in Daniel chapter 8, we have some more detail yet again being revealed concerning this time two of the earlier empires, the Medo-Persian Empire and how that was taken over by the Grecians under their formidable leader, Alexander the Great, described as this notable horn um, of the goat. But then the vision also describes that that horn is broken off and four horns come out instead of the one. And that's describing to us what happened after Alexander the, the, the Great died. Because you see, what happened was that his empire was divided among his four generals. And... When we come to Daniel chapter 11, 
the focus now shifts in particularly uh, onto two of those four generals and their their successes, um, their, their, their empires that they really um, established. We have the focus now shifting on Seleucus, which is called in Daniel chapter 11, the king of the north. And we have Ptolemy, who was ruling down in Egypt, which is styled in Daniel 11, the king of the south. And they simply called that because of the focus of Daniel 11 being on the land of Israel and Israel being sandwiched between, between those two, the king of the north, the Seleucids, and the king of the south, the Ptolemies, um, and Israel being sandwiched in between. And it's in relation to the, to the land of Israel that, um, that this, this uh, um, that, the, in, that this, this vision is given in Daniel chapter 11. So um, what, we, what we have is in Daniel chapter 11 that we have a, a lot of historical detail given particularly about those two kings. And the, what we see, um, sorry, I'm just trying to, got a slide, oh, here we go. Now it's coming up. I was just trying to figure out the, the slides here. When we come to Daniel 11, as I said, we have a, a, quite a bit of focus on those two. And particularly in the bulk of the chapter, in verses 5 to 32, um, we have the king of the north versus the king of the south going back and forth and describing a lot of detail about um, the things that are happening between those two. In this Hellenistic period, the Grecian period still, from BC 311 to 166, now, then we have a, a different power entering, um, entering in on the, onto the scene because in verse 30 and to 39, the new power entering the world scene is the Roman power. And as you may appreciate, they took over the entire area of what was previously the king of the north and the king of the south territories. And so therefore, in verse 36, it simply talks about the king. And the focus in these verses is on that Roman power, which now becomes the main aggressor against the Jews, which persecutes them. They removed them from the land of Israel in AD 70, and they continued to persecute them um, even in, within, within their Roman Empire as well. Now, when we come to verse 40, we're in a different time period yet again. We read that now we're in the time of the end. And here we find again a king of the north and a king of the south. But we also find a third entity that is simply styled the him because the king of the south and the king of the north both push or, or come against uh, someone called him. Now, I think when we come to verse 40 um, and we read that we're, we're now at the time of the end, we... we um, we probably haven't got much difficulty um, to figure out who is is the king of the south and who's the king of the north because we've already looked at, at a lot of that in Ezekiel 38. But what about the hymn? Well, from Ezekiel 38, we might guess that the king of the south is actually the British power and that the king of the north is that northern invader, which is the, the Russian power. But let's just see how, how this is going to outplay. 
because we need to figure out who the him is. Who is, is the, the him? Well, the power simply styled the him is in fact the Bible's way to describe that third power from a different origin than the Greek and Latin heritage. It's not coming from the Greeks or from the Romans. Here's a different power, but a power that has taken over parts of the area of that, of that, of that ancient empire. And we're talking about the Muslim power of the Ottoman Turk. Because for at the time of the end, we see this power in charge of the Holy Land and in charge of what was once the, the capital of the King of the North's territory, which was Constantinople. You see, in, 14, in 1453, the uh, Turks under Mehmet II conquered the Byzantine Empire and Constantinople in the wake of, of which, actually, if uh, you may have heard about this, but in the wake of, of, of this invasion and the taking of, of Constantinople, the, the last um, the capital of the Byzantine Empire, the remnants of the Eastern Roman Empire were actually relocated to Moscow, which would become known um, as the Third Rome because it inherited the seat or the throne of Constantinople. Um, you can you can see this uh, on the slide, perhaps um, that they they reckon that well that at least the Russians claim that the some of those those um, things from the Byzantine Empire uh, came from uh, from there, and they say here that it becomes a symbol not only of the supreme authority but of authority in succession from Byzantium. So. They themselves claim that they are uh, the successors of that Byzantine Empire. But if we come, if we come back to um, our story, basically, we see that the, the him is the Ottoman Turk who has, who has now taken over um, Constantinople and at the time of the end is in charge or in power of the Holy Land of Israel, which is the focus of Daniel chapter 11. So, as verse 40 then says, At the time of the end shall the king of the south push at him, at the Ottoman Turk. Now, if you remember, the, the, the king of the south is the dominant power in, in, in the context of this chapter, is the power that rules in this, the area to the south of Israel. Now the question is, when did we see a power push at the Ottoman Turk from the south? Well, you may remember we just recently had Anzac Day in memory of the failed attack of Britain um, and the Anzacs where they, in World War I, were trying to invade Turkey directly, um, not far actually from Constantinople, and trying to, to bring an end to that war pretty quickly. But as God had said, it would be not, not there that they would push at the king, or, or at this him, the Ottoman Empire, but from the south. And, and England was, Britain and the Anzacs were trying to go in, um, right there, not far from Constantinople, near, near there, at, at the place called Gallipoli. And of course, 
we, we know history, it failed. And they ended up having to go from the south through Egypt, pushing up north and, and so to speak, pushing at the Ottoman Empire. And thus actually liberating the, uh, the entire land of Israel and also um, then paving the way for it, the Israel becoming a British mandate and laying the foundation for the partial restoration, as we saw with, with Chris, um, of the Jews returning to the land and the state of Israel being established. So, basically, half of this verse, in verse 40, has already been fulfilled. But Britain never took um, Istanbul or Constantinople. They only pushed the Ottoman Turk back into the area of Turkey um, and the, the setup that we see today with the various countries there. So Britain, though, this verse being fulfilled, became the king of the south in 1917. Um, and part A of, of this verse 40 in Daniel 11 has been fulfilled. So what Daniel is saying is that this event, the pushing back of the Turkish power, the failure at Gallipoli and the subsequent campaign that brought um, Britain through Israel, that was the event that heralded the beginning of the time of the end in Daniel. That's our, our, our time landmark, basically, our signpost that we're, we're saying now we need to look up because this is the beginning of the time of the end. This is the, the, the beginning of the, of the events as they're going to unfold relating to the time of the event. And we want to tuck that away um, before we go to Revelation 16 later on. We want to tuck that away that, that it says this here, that this is the beginning of the time of the end. So um, what happens next? It says here, and the king of the north shall come against him like a whirlwind with chariots and with horsemen and with many ships. And he shall enter into the countries and shall overflow and pass over. So we have an invasion of the king of the north. Well, where have we heard that before? Ezekiel 38, right? And has that already happened? Well, no, not yet. So first of all, what, we, what, we, what it seems to say here is that the king of the north pushes at him, the Ottoman Turk, and the remnant that's left of him, and why would Russia have an interest in Turkey? Why would it be interested in Turkey and in Constantinople? Why would it want to push at, at Turkey? Well, Russia has perhaps, you may not realize this, but has had perhaps for quite some time um, had a desire to come into the Middle East, uh, into, sorry, into, into Turkey and into Constantinople. You see, this is the Hagia Sophia, which was actually originally a Byzantine church. And that, of course, as we saw, is the heritage of the Russian Orthodox Church. And what's interesting is that if you go to the Kremlin today and you look at the, 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 the sort of onion-shaped um, roofs of some of the churches in the Kremlin, you will find a strange symbol, the symbol of the, the Russian Orthodox cross over the top of the um, crescent of the, of the Muslim power. Now, what is that about? Well, 
Interestingly, a, um, a fellow Christadelphian by the name of John Ramston um, writes this. He says that on a visit to the churches inside the Moscow Kremlin, we asked the Russian tourist official why there were Islamic-type crescents underneath the crosses, top of the Cathedral of the Assumption. And she turned to us with great surprise and asked if we had forgotten from whence the early Russian Tsars had come. And ever since those days, the old Russian Tsars have nursed the idea that one day they would return to Constantinople. So Russia has, first of all, a religious interest in returning to Istanbul or Constantinople. That is their religious heritage, where they're coming from. But you see, it also said that Russia would come with many ships and then overflow the countries. And we have to realize how strategically important Turkey really is to, to Russia and Turkey being the gateway into the Mediterranean for Russia. So here was an article that I found um, just beginning of this year. There's tension between Russia and Turkey on and off, um, particularly with regards to the war in Syria. They have for quite some time had uh, um, differing interests um, and they've been blow they've come to blows and this article headline said could russia go to war with turkey and syria so it's we're not talking about something that's completely out of the ordinary uh, out, out of the impo um, possible it also in this um, article here said leaders role may leave turkey russia relations fragile this is from march this year and note what it says um, there in, in in the red that it the relationship depends on those two leaders talking with each other. But you can appreciate, if you know anything about um, Recep Erdogan and Vladimir Putin, that that is a highly volatile situation. So it says here in this article, this is inherently fragile and unpredictable, experts warn. Now, you take into account what we were saying, that they will come down with many ships. And you'll appreciate when you look at the ge geographical situation the importance of particularly Istanbul and Constantinople um, when for, for, for this verse to make sense because it says that he shall come with many ships and he will overflow and come into the countries and shall overflow and pass over. So when he passes over, where does he, what does he reach? Well, he comes into the Middle East. And it does so, he does so with many ships, it says. We want to take note of that. So what that means is, is that we would look to, um, in, with very much interest to see what's happening with Russia's navy and with its movements in the Mediterranean. And what we find is that, first of all, Russia is very uh, slowly but very surely modernizing its entire navy. It says here, um, this is from 2019, they completed a key test on a, of an upgraded missile corvette. The trial underscores the evolution of the Russian fleet from a force dominated by a few large, large vessels to one with a larger number of smaller ships. Now, this is interesting because it says, said in Daniel, he will come with many ships. And what we need to appreciate is that unlike the, the US that puts a lot of emphasis on their big aircraft carriers, 
Russia only has one aircraft carrier, but what they're doing at the moment is very smart. They're doing a lot of um, rejigging of their the of their their navy and their fleet, and producing a lot of smaller ships that are very agile, but nonetheless pack a huge punch. As you will um, see that their their um, rockets, um, their as it says here, their frigates, corvettes, and submarines armed with these caliber missiles can target the Mediterranean area and the Middle East. So they're very very fast. They're very agile, but they pack a punch, and they can be deployed very quickly and speedily, and they can create a, a missile shield and a, and, and a range that, that is very, very powerful and very, very dangerous um, and perceived as, as dangerous by the US and NATO. Now, as I mentioned, key to all this is for Russia to be able to deploy those ships. And here you can see the Black Sea there's only this tiny, narrow little strait that goes right through the city of Istanbul, ancient Constantinople, for them to be able to actually reach the Mediterranean. Now, what do you, how do you think Russia will feel if Turkey decides to close that? Well, they're not very happy. And in fact, this headline here already um, intimated, this was in February of this year, it said Turkey may close the Bosphorus to Russian warships. Turkey may soon be closing the Bosporus Straits to Russian warships, warships in order to prevent them from continuing to resupply the Syrian regime. Now, Russia will, would not be happy with that. They would not be happy with Turkey flexing its, its muscles. And Russia will not tolerate a situation in which they are cut off from supplying or resupplying their navy in the Mediterranean. That is not a situation that the Russians will tolerate. Now, the reason being in particularly that in recent times, Russia has had a renewed interest in making themselves um, visible and a, a, a power in the Middle East. Particularly through Syria, they have managed to become and project themselves, as it says here in this article, as a rising power broker in the Middle East. So they've got new new influence here, particularly with regards to Iran and, and Syria. And the, the situation may in fact change um, for a time being, as there's new um, developments just happening maybe in the last couple of days, where Russia seems to be making a slight um, deviation of their, their goals and their, their course with Syria. And in fact, the, the um, pandemic itself, we'll have to wait and see what's, what, what that is going to do. It may lead um, Russia to, in the short term, perhaps change slightly what it's doing. But this next article shows that long term, they're not going to change much because they are pouring a lot of money into the Syrian port of, of, of um, Tartus. As you can see here, 500 million in its only naval base outside the, the, the former Soviet Union. They have no other access to the Mediterranean than, than through their fleet that comes from the Black Sea, stationed probably mostly in, in Sebastopol and Crimea, and then in Tartus. 
and they're looking at other other um, ports in the Mediterranean at the moment, but particularly in Syria, they're pouring a lot of money into into this thing. And here it says, Russia working with the regime of Bashar Assad has increased its um, at, at Tartars in recent years, giving Russia's navy a bigger foothold in the Mediterranean Sea. And it it also says here, and I found this very interesting in this article, this link between Putin's military campaigns in Syria and in the Ukraine. What do those two things have in common? We've seen recently Russia meddling in in the Ukraine first and then in Syria. Well, what is that to do? Well, both of those places are important to Russia because of their ports for its navy. And so it says here, both Syria and Ukraine are home to Russian naval bases. And Tartars in Syria helps establish Russia's presence in the Mediterranean. And then look at this. Even if Russia isn't exclusively mobilizing its military to secure naval bases, the Kremlin has clearly demonstrated that restoring a strong presence on the high seas is a priority. And Vladimir Putin tends to act on his priorities. He sure does. So it's remarkable to see these events um, kind of preparing themselves to, to really fulfill what we're told in Daniel 11, that Russia will come, its focus is on Turkey first, spilling over into the Mediterranean, many ships. We can see all this happening right now. Here was a headline that uh, came in the, uh, in the National Interest um, News site. Is Putin turning the Mediterranean into Russian lake? Now, here is uh, another article that I showed you last week that was talking about Russia's interests in Israel itself and in the Middle East due to the, the gas fields that have been discovered. Now, they, Israel is worried, of course, that Russia wants a share in there because they might want to prevent competition with Russian gas, if you remember. But one thing I didn't um, read out for you from uh, last time is this comment, which I found really remarkable. This comment here says, another concern is that Russian involvement in Israel's gas reservoirs could prove the perfect excuse for the entry of Russian warships in order to protect the gas drilling platforms. Isn't that remarkable? Well, we are told in Daniel 11 that that's exactly what will happen. That they will come down with many ships and will take a spoil and will take the, the riches um, of Egypt and of Israel. Now, in verse 41, there are a number of nations that will escape this invasion. Edom, Moab, Ammon, and those actually correspond with Jordan, today's Jordan. And why is that? Well, it seems that they are under the protection of the king of the south, or as Ezekiel puts it, Tarshish and its young lions, if you remember last time we looked at that. And that's exactly what we saw. They Already Jordan is hosting as you, if you remember from last time, a annual military um, exercise that's particularly supported by the U.S. and Britain and Australia and um, and all those 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 countries that are predominantly um, associated here with the King of the South, 
Um, and, and Jordan here, it seems to be indicating from Daniel 11, is involved in that as well. So what Daniel goes on to show is this. He will enter Egypt just like this ancient Scythians did, just like Ezekiel described for us, if you remember. So he will come down, take the spoil, um, and the land of Egypt will not escape. He shall have power over the treasures of gold and the silver and over all the precious things of Egypt. And it says that the Libyans and the Ethiopians shall be at his, um, at his, at his helping him as well. And then it says, But tidings out of the east and out of the north shall trouble him. Therefore he shall go forth with great fury to destroy and utterly to make away many. And he shall plant the tabernacles of his palace between the seas and the glorious holy mountain. Yet he shall come to his end and none shall help. So we'll find out from a little bit more from Revelation 16 in a moment um, what the tidings out of the east and the north are. But Russia will turn back, Daniel says, Daniel 11 says, will turn back into the land of Israel and come against Jerusalem. And that is where he, and then finally also all his, 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 his whole host and the whole invasion will come to an end and they'll find their end. So, we've seen how this is going to happen. How the Russia will come down. Perhaps some of the, the things that will draw him out. The circumstances that will draw him out to take Turkey. And to then go and overflow, go into the, into the Middle East. We've seen Russia has already a deep desire, both religiously driven and perhaps also economically, to take first Constantinople and then to go further into the Mediterranean, into the Middle East. And in fact, the, the recent events with the pandemic might also bring about, we don't know yet, but we might bring about uh, economic hardship and economic hardship um, for countries like Russia who are prepared to act aggressively is always a dangerous combination. And so we actually see very much also that these events really talk about the same phrase that we learn from, from uh, Revelation 16 and verse 16, when it says that he gathered them together into a place called in the Hebrew tongue Armageddon. And so we finally come back to the chapter and verse that we started with, the only verse in fact in the Bible um, where the word Armageddon actually occurs. But hopefully now we have a broader understanding of not only what Armageddon is, but also who is involved and how it will happen. So that leaves us to investigate the, the when. When will this all happen? So let's go back to the, the book of Revelation. Uh, and first of all, I think it might be helpful to understand perhaps the, where the overall flow of the book of Revelation fits in, the chapter 16, where it fits in in the, in the overall flow. Really what we find in the book of Revelation is a ticking clock, a, a countdown. You see, in Revelation um, 1 and verse 1, it says that Jesus Christ was going to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass. Now that word shortly in the Greek is 
en tachos, and means in short. So Christ would reveal things that would begin to happen shortly after the prophecy of the book of Revelation was given to John, which was in about AD 96. And it would reveal unfolding events continuously down through time until, until what? Well, if we look at what it's described at the end of the book of Revelation, the end of the book of Revelation describes to us the setting up of the kingdom of God. It'll be set up and the whole purpose is revealed unto us that God actually wants to dwell with mankind. Verse 2 and 3 of, of Revelation um, 21, it says, And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven. And it said, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them. So God wants to dwell with mankind. But when we come to chapter 22, the last chapter of the Bible, Jesus is giving us his parting words. And they are words of encouragement. But also they are words of an appeal and a warning. Because you see, three times in this last chapter, he says that he's going to come. Three times he's going to say, behold, I come. In verse 7 of chapter 22, he says, behold, I come quickly. In verse 12, he says, and behold, I come quickly. And again, at the end of verse, in verse 20, he says, surely I come quickly. Amen. So I think the Lord Jesus Christ wants to emphasize that this book of Revelation and, his me and the message there is that I'm going to come. And therefore, the question is, are we ready for it? And that word quickly in chapter 22 is also the word tachos, but without the preposition in in front. And by itself, the word doesn't just mean short, but it can also mean quickly and suddenly. So the warning from the Lord Jesus Christ is that he's coming suddenly. Now, where in the book of Revelation is the context of his coming and the idea of coming suddenly? Well, it is in our chapter and it is in the context of Armageddon. Revelation 16 verse 15, the, the verse just before it mentions Armageddon, where he says, Behold, I come as a thief. I come stealthily. I come suddenly. I come unexpectedly. And that is in the context of Armageddon. So that's the purpose of the book of Revelation, is to prepare us for that coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. So how do we know that we're really in the times of the end here in chapter 16 at the moment when the thief-like appearing of Jesus Christ and the battle of Armageddon are going to take place. Well, let's just follow this countdown, this ticking clock through the book of Revelation um, at the moment when the thief-like, um, to see where, where, where our time fits in to the grand structure and the, of this continued revealed word of prophecy in, in Revelation. Well, as we mentioned, the book of Revelation was given to John in about AD 96, and the events were given to him in language that is highly symbolic. The whole book is full of, of code language, symbolic language that's drawn from the rest of the Bible. But we know that the events described to John in visions were to be, of course, the, the history as it unfolded from AD 96 onwards. And so 
what we have is at first the seven visions, uh, the, set, the vision of the seven seals, and that each get opened in succession, and they detail out the events regarding the persecution of Christians under the pagan Roman emperor, and the disasters that would come upon the pagan Roman empire as a result of, of, of that, of their persecution of the Christians as a punishment. These seals cover the time period from AD 96 to about AD 311. Now in the sixth seal in Revelation 6 verse 12, we have a great earthquake described. There are three earthquakes described in the book of Revelation. And each of them refer to a major political change. Changes that affect the worldwide political scene. That's what an earthquake in Revelation is about. Uh, they refer to a, a major change in the political scene. And the earthquake, this earthquake here, refers to a major change to the Roman Empire. And that was the change from paganism to Christianity under the rulership of Constantine around that time. He changed the state religion of the entire Roman Empire to Christianity after the Battle of the Milvian Bridge in AD 312. Now, that's where the last seal reveals the next phrase. In, in, as the last seal is open in chapter 8, seven angels appear with seven trumpets. And they start to blow these trumpets one after another in order to describe the events and happenings to the Christian Roman Empire from about AD 395 to AD um, 1063. And included in these visions are references to Muhammad and the rise of the Muslim powers as well as the, the terrifying raids of the Seljuks, the Mongols, the Tatars and the Ottomans. Now at the very end of the sixth trumpet we have another earthquake described for us in Revelation 11 verse 13. And again this is an event that shook up the political ruling class. And this earthquake speaks of the French Revolution that happened in 1789, which changed the, the political, entire political scene in Europe, the effects of which still govern the, the very makeup, not only of, of Europe today, but of the entire world. This event and its, and its effects is a major signpost for us, as we'll see in a minute, because we're starting to come very much closer to our time, aren't we? This earthquake is in fact what heralds in the last trumpet. The seventh trumpet ushers in and includes the seven vials that are described for us in chapter 16. So we're coming now to our chapter. And the, the vials are, are in the direct aftermath of the French Revolution, that political earthquake of huge proportions. And so these vials are going to deal with the aftermath of the French Revolution. Now, it's, it's interesting that since, the, si that since the time of the trumpets, when the Caesars were both, the were both political as well as the religious heads, a new ruler emerged as co-ruler to the political ruler. The preeminence of the Pope developed in the lead-up to the events of the vials. And Europe, before the French Revolution, was very much dominated by, by Catholic rule and by the, um, the, by the rulership of the Pope, as well as the, 
the, um, the emperors. And what we'll find is that these vials are, are directly and particularly directed against Catholic Europe and therefore are the judgments on papal Rome. Now, before we delve into the, the detail of chapter 16, I just want to point out a couple of things um, of what the point of the, this chapter 16 really is about, what, what these events are leading us to, what the aftermath of, of the French Revolution, Revolution are leading us to. So we have the seven vials that are, that are poured out. But what, what it says in Revelation 15, verse 1, where, where it introduces uh, the vials, it says, I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having the seven last plagues, for in them is filled up the wrath of God. They style the seven last plagues, indicating that something is going to come to an end. The wrath of God is filled up in them. Something is going to change dramatically from now on. And then it says in, in Revelation 16 verse 17, that when the seventh angel poured out his vial into the air, there came a great voice out of the temple of heaven from the throne saying, It is done. So they're the last plagues. When the sixth vial is finished and the seventh vial come, God says it is done. His purpose is finished. So now the end result, the purpose of God on earth has come to pass. And in verse 18 of chapter 16, we learn that there is our third earthquake. Notice what it says, though, about this one. There were voices and thunders and lightnings, and there was a great earthquake such as was not since men were upon the earth. So mighty an earthquake and so great. There's never been an earthquake so big. Now, remember in Revelation, we're talking, when we're talking about earthquakes, that primarily relates to a major change in the political style of government. Now this change is so great that nothing the likes has been seen before and that's because this change is the change from democracy to theocracy. Under the rulership of the Lord Jesus Christ as King, the Kingdom of God is going to be set up. That's this great massive earthquake the likes of which has not seen before. So that's what these vials are about. These seven last plagues. Now I think we can see the significance for us that we need to know when this is going to happen because a major change is going to come upon this earth. So let's have a closer look at these vials. They are, as we mentioned, the aftermath of the French Revolution. The previous earthquake, as we mentioned. French Revolution is what kicks off the events in this chapter. And so the very first vial really is the immediate aftermath of the French Revolution. It says that this vial is like a malignant ulcer spreading across the earth. And in the words of Winston Churchill, he said that the French Revolution was to spread out from Paris across the whole continent. It gave rise to a generation of warfare and its echoes reverberated long into the 19th century and afterward. And the conquest of Napoleon really spread the ideas of the French Revolution of liberté, égalité, and fraternité throughout Europe and beyond. 
And we note that throughout this time, the Catholic Church in particular was the target of severe punishment. Now, vial 2, it says, was poured out onto the sea. What we see, of course, in history is that from 1793 onwards, Britain opposed Napoleon by its superiority on the high seas and their superior navy. Not superior number, but better trained and they're better in quality. It says in the Penguin Atlas of the, of the World History that Admiral Nelson secured British naval supremacy and the blockade of French ports and the seizure of ships increased the British fleet by several vessels a year. That's what vial 2 was about when the vial was poured out onto the sea that turned to blood. Then vial 3 is poured out, it says, on the rivers and lakes of, of Italy and Tyrol. Speaking of Napoleon's conquests in that area. Napoleon entered this area, which is really uh, the, the origin of many of the rivers and fountains of water in that, in that area. And this area in particular had witnessed very cruel persecutions of, of the Bible believers at the hands of the Catholic powers. And you might see in verse 6 of, of Revelation 16 that part of the reason why this judgment is poured out is because they have shed the blood of saints and prophets and thou hast given them blood to drink. And so Napoleon brought God's judgment upon that area. Well, and then vial four is poured out onto the sun. The sun being a symbol. Remember, this is a book of symbol. The sun being a symbol of the ruler of the Holy Roman Empire. Napoleon had been given the, the title of King of Fire by the Mamluks. And even earlier, he, he notably used cannons to suppress uprisings in France. He loved to use cannons. And he expertly used them again in the battle battles that he fought. And in 1805, he triumphed in the Battle of Austerlitz. And shortly after, in 1806, the Holy Roman Empire collapsed and was no more. I then vial 5 describes the vial being poured out on the seat of the beast. We don't have time to go into detail too much, but um, this refers to the events that continued to strip the Pope of all its temporal power. That Pope, up to this point, um, owned tracts of land and was ruling over actual um, stretches of land. And as Larousse mentions, that in 1809, Napoleon imprisoned the Pope, and that this, this was the beginning of the end of the Pope's temporal power, which finally came to an end in 1870. So as we're moving through here, and as we're coming to the sixth vial, we can see how in very quick succession we go past through history. They're not very short. They're a very short time period here. And we find ourselves very much nearing our time. And this brings us to the events of the sixth vial. Now, what do we read about this sixth vial? Well, we read... That the sixth angel poured out his vial upon the great river Euphrates, and the water thereof was dried up. I'll just wait a moment. Just, here we go. That slide's coming up. All right, let's try that again. 
Okay, we start at verse 12. And the sixth angel poured out his vial upon the great river Euphrates, and the water thereof was dried up, that the way of the kings of the east might be prepared. And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs come out of the mouth of the dragon, and out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. For they are the spirits of devils working miracles which go forth unto the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them to the battle of that great day of God Almighty. For behold, I come as a thief. Blessed is he that watcheth and keepeth his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. And he gathered them together into a place called in the Hebrew tongue Armageddon. So here are uh, so here are the things that we want to take note of. There's the drying up of the river Euphrates, and there are three unclean frog-like spirit, frog spirits that are the means by which all the nations are gathered to the battle we now know takes place at Armageddon. Now, but this vial commences with this event, the drying up of the river Euphrates. That's the event that starts this vial. So what is this drying up of the river Euphrates? Well, in the Bible, rivers can speak of the military power of the nation that is associated with that river. In ancient times, for example, the, the river Euphrates was the principal river of the Assyrians and then of the Babylonians. And it becomes, it's used in Isaiah 8 verse 7 as an analogy to describe the military might of Assyria when he comes to bring judgment. And it's described as a river that's overflowing, that comes into Israel to bring judgment. It says here, Behold, the Lord bringeth up upon them the waters of the river, strong and many, even the king of Assyria and all his glory. And he shall come up over all his channels and go over all his banks. So the the river really is a symbol for the military power of the nation that is associated with that river. When it comes in, in judgment, then it will overflow. And it reminds us, doesn't it, a little bit about what it said in Daniel 11, when the king of the north comes and overflows the country and goes over that, that country. So it's similar language. When the judgment comes and is poured out, it's like a river that overflows. But what we're told here in Revelation 16 is that the water of this river was dried up. So later, um, what we actually find in history that later on when Babylon, after Babylon had taken over the Assyrian king kingdom, the Euphrates actually flowed through the city of Babylon. Now when Cyrus, the king of the Persians, looked to overthrow Babylon and he besieged the city of Babylon, the only way he could find into the city was by diverting the flow of the river and essentially lowering the water and drying out the riverbed so that he could walk into the city under the, 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 the gates that they had built over the, the water course. And he walked in through the dried up riverbed. And so a drying up of the Euphrates caused the decline and fall of the Babylonian Empire, which up to this, this date in time was associated with that river. But when we come to the book of Revelation, the river Euphrates has already been mentioned earlier in the book, in chapter 9 and verse 14. And here it says, 
saying to the sixth angel which had the trumpet, Lose the four angels which are bound in the great river Euphrates. And as we already mentioned, that this relates to the four waves of judgment that came from that area, namely the Seljuks, the Mongols, the Tartars, and then finally the Ottoman, um, the Ottoman Turk. So when we come to chapter 16, it is in fact the Ottoman power that is still associated with that river, because that's the, the power geographically that's associated with it now. But of course, as we mentioned, we don't have this river overflowing, but drying up. And so we see a decline in that power. The decline of the Ottoman Empire is the beginning of Vial 6. And it marks the beginning of the time of the end, just exactly, if you remember now, what Daniel 11 said also, that at the time of the end shall the king of the south, Britain, push at him the, the Ottoman Turk. And so what we see is that the, the, the time period in which we're in is exactly the same as in Daniel 11. The events are the same. We are at the beginning of the time of the end here at the, at, in the sixth vial. Now, the river drying up from the extremities, the Ottoman Empire lost more and more of its outer reaches. It didn't just collapse. It sort of was drying up like a river from the extremities. And as we mentioned from Daniel 11, it was the British power in World War I who pushed them ever further back. Now, for Bible, read for Bible readers and students of the past, it's, it's not hard to see, uh, to have figured out what, what this um, verse was saying here in, in Revelation 16, the drying up of the review Euphrates. So I'll just wait here till the, um, till the slide catches up with uh, where I'm at. Here's the drying up of the river Euphrates back into, into the, um, the, the uh, land of Turkey as we know today. Right, now here's a comment from over 350 years ago by a John Tillinghast written in 1654 who says, We are to understand the Ottoman family or Turkish empire called the Great River because of the multitude of people and nations therein Rivers signifying people and nations, and the waters thereof were dried up. The Turks' power and multitude through the pouring out of this vial shall be wasted and destroyed. And another writer in 1848 made very much the same comments when he wrote that the water of the great river Euphrates in like manner represents the military power of the Ottoman Empire, which is dissipated by a process of evaporation, a drying up, a gradual exhaustion so as to last, so as at last to leave the channel of the river in the heart of the great city empty and devoid of all power to impede or interfere with operations developing in the southeastern recesses of the empire. The military and political power of the Ottoman Empire was to be dried up by the wrath of the sixth vial, that the way for a certain class of kings might be cleared of all hindrances and impediments to their enterprise in its beginnings. Now, this writer makes an interesting comment about this certain class of kings. Because if we come back to Revelation 16, it says that the reason for the drying up of this river Euphrates was that the way of the kings of the east might be prepared. Now, a 
better translation for this might be from, taken from Young's literal translation, which says that the way of the kings who are from the rising of the sun may be made ready. Now, who are these kings from the rising of the sun? Well, another passage from the Old Testament gives us the answer. Malachi 4 verse 1 and 2 says, For behold, the day cometh, so again we have reference to a day of judgment, that shall burn as an oven, and all the proud, yea, and all the, that do wickedly shall be stubble. And the day that cometh shall burn them up, saith Yahweh, says the Lord of hosts. But unto you that fear my name shall the Son of Righteousness arise with healing in his wings, and ye shall go forth. So here, these kings from the rising of the sun are, dis, uh, are styled those people who fear God and are associated with the Son of Righteousness, which of course is a symbol for the Lord Jesus Christ, as we can see from these passages in the New Testament. In John 8, verse 12, and Revelation 1, verse 16, where Jesus says, I am the light of the world, that we have to follow him, and he will give us light. And also in Revelation 1, verse 16, when it speaks of a vision describing the Lord Jesus Christ with the saints, where it says this, his countenance was as the sun shining in his strength. So remarkably as, this, as it sounds, but the decline of the Ottoman Empire is truly the event that prepares the way of the kings who are from the rising of the sun, the appearing of Jesus Christ with his saints. It heralds the time of the end when all these things will find their climax. Now that drying up was around the time of 1917, over 100 years ago. The previous vials only lasted a few years each. This one has been going for quite some time. Why? Well, I would suggest that it is God allowing us time to prepare so that we might be a part of these kings from the sun's rising. That's remarkable. Okay, so what else are we told in these verses leading up to Armageddon? What is it the means by which these nations are actually gathered together? Well, a drying up of a river gives opportunities for little tadpoles to develop into frogs. And here we have described in verse 13 and 14 frog-like spirits that will go forth to gather the nations. So what are frog-like spirits? Well, in 1 John we're described these spirits, or we're described spirits as being false prophets. They're teachings. They're false ideas that are being spread. In Exodus 8, if, if we think of frogs in the Bible, we might think of the, the exodus of the people of Israel out of Egypt. In Exodus 8, verse 8, the frogs are connected with a false promise of liberty. And in Psalms, we see them affecting even the kings. They are to be found in the chambers of their kings, of the leaders. That's how far they're reaching they are. They're affecting governments. Now, frogs have long been associated, if we think about the events that are heralding, uh, that have brought about the events in Revelation 16, the French Revolution. Well, we find that 
the three spirits of the French Revolution, liberty, equality and fraternity, are the catch cries of democracy even today. And funnily enough, even in ancient times, the French were associated with frogs. I mean, they eat them. They eat frog legs for, for starters, but we find them as memorabilia or on their memorabilia on shields and the armor of the French kings. You can see it in this tapestry um, about the Battle of the French. And of course, we have the, the, the catch cry of, of, as we said, of, the, of, of democracy and of this revolution that took place, liberty, equality and fraternity. But we note that they come out of the mouths of three entities, out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. Now, the mouth of the dragon is, is Russia. We don't have time to, to look into this in any detail, but um, you'll just have to take my word for it for the moment. The mouth of the beast is Europe, and the mouth of the false prophet is the Pope. And it's remarkable what we, what we that when you look for these ideas of false liberty, of, of equality, of fraternity, we see them coming out of the mouths of these, depending on the purpose that they, these people want to do. So, for example, the mouth of the dragon, Russia, you may not think that they speak of, of democracy too much, but when it suits them, they also talk about these things. Now, in this article, which we're not going to read through, but if you see at the bottom left-hand side there, it says just recently about the, this readaptation of what Russia might want to be doing in Syria. It says, Russia's idea of mission accomplished in Syria is no longer to keep Assad in power, but to pave the way for a legitimate internationally recognized government. So when it suits Russia, it'll also talk about liberty and, 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 and the, the, the values that the West holds. Of course, the um, EU and Europe, Western Europe, of, of course, has been the, the, the cradle of where these three spirits come from. And we particularly note this um, article on the right-hand side where Mac Emmanuel Macron, the French leader, in his first speech before the European Parliament, called for energetic changes and open debate with EU citizens, trying to call for uh, re-looking at democracy, the, the great heritage of the French Revolution. And what's also remarkable is that we hear the same message out of the mouth of the false prophet when it says here that the synod of, of the catholic church opens with call for religious freedom for all in the middle east christians must work to defend freedom democracy peace and the human rights of each and every individual said the leaders of the synod of bishops for the middle east so what's remarkable is that even in recent years, we've still, we're still seeing the effects of these three spirits at work. The ideas of false liberty spreading throughout the world, especially with the events in the Middle East. Arab Spring, as we've seen from the um, early years into 2010 onwards, the wave of revolution that swept through the Middle East and the subsequent unrest and civil wars. Now, the Arabs didn't actually call it Arab Spring. They call it revolution. And... Here we have that same idea that affected the, even, up, even the kings of all these nations in the Arab countries. Um, we'll just move through that um, quickly. We saw, we saw the, the 
spirit of revolution rip through the entire area of the Middle East and Northern Africa, um, where all of a sudden all these revolutions um, appeared. And also where since then still the, the civil wars rage um, that are bringing about an interesting effect. I want you to have a, a close look at this because what they're doing is that they have realigned the Islamic world exactly according to what we've looked at in Ezekiel 38 and in Daniel 11. Because we see, we see a realignment of this area here of Egypt, Jordan, Kuwait, Saudi Arabia and Oman and Yemen as being uh, opposed to or, or in, in conflict to Iran um, particularly and some of the North African um, states are more aligned with Iran and with Russia. So we've seen how these revolutions, these unclean spirits ripping through the Middle East have realigned things so exactly to how we would see things. And we used to be, we used to um, see a West-East conflict between Russia and Western Europe. Well, that's changed to a reorientation to North-South. And part of that has been this, this change of democracy, if you think back of the overthrow of the Soviet Union even. Now, all that means that it all fits now with Ezekiel 38. And all that was achieved by, by these three unclean spirits, by these three frog-like spirits that have gone out to all the world and so the events described to us in Revelation 16 relate to our very own recent history that we have lived through. The time of the end as described by Daniel 11 and here in Revelation 16, the sixth vial, that time has begun. We are in the last days. And there's nothing left to be fulfilled before the gathering of all the nations to the place called Armageddon, apart from one thing, the thief-like return of the Lord Jesus Christ to gather his saints unto him and be ready to intervene with the saints as the kings of the rising of the sun to help Jesus Christ establish the kingdom and reign on this earth. So, in summary then, what we've seen is what the Bible says about Armageddon, that it's a great battle in a place in Israel where all the nations are going to be gathered. We've seen the various nations being identified for us. We've seen the main aggressor, Russia, and, his, and Russia's role in all this. We've seen that this battle is going to place in the end times, the times in which Israel will be restored to the land. We've seen that the end time began with the drying up of the river Euphrates and how the spirit of the French Revolution will ultimately bring the nations to Israel. But we've also seen how this event, far from being the end of all things, is merely the beginning. It marks the return of the Lord Jesus Christ and the divine intervention in the affairs of mankind. Now the question is, are you and I ready for this change? 
You see, we as Christadelphians would like to put it to you that if you don't know the scriptures and are not baptized, meaning you are not in a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, then you won't have certainty about your future. You will still have worry and anxiety. You will not be ready. Now is the time to do something about this. This is not the time to wait and see what's going to happen. The point of prophecy is that we might know these things so that we might be warned and do something about it before the events will come. The sudden storm-like movements of Russia and the thief-like advent of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now is the time to act and for you to search out these matters for yourself with your Bible in your hand. And the Bible's message is this. Be ready. Develop a relationship with, with God through Jesus Christ. In the words of Jesus Christ himself, from the book of Revelation, where he gives us that warning. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcome and am set down with my father in his throne. So thank you very much. I, I appreciate that this was a lot of material. But we really encourage you to, to look at these things because the warnings are here and the encouragement is here that we can be part of these kings from the sun's rising. Thank you. Mm -hmm.